All right, well, as the kids were standing up here, it reminded me of a friend of mine in Indiana when he was in high school. Um, they had an award ceremony for the scholars of the school, I guess, the straight-A students and at the end of the year, and so my friend just went up there who was a straight-C student, and he stood among them on the stage like this. And, and they passed out the diplomas and such, and he was just standing there in front of the full congregate, or auditorium, just had a flashback of that for whatever reason. But, uh, but I am proud of these kids, for sure. And I know some kids are missing. There's a big Hutch soccer tournament this weekend, and uh, they're playing in the rain, so hopefully their ankles will stay intact. We're in Roman, uh, Re- Revelation chapter 2 and 3 this morning in our study of Re- Revelations. And I, as I mentioned in weeks past, we're not going to go chapter to chapter but we're going to cover theme to theme in Revelation. Otherwise, we'd be in this until after Christmas. But um, the Apostle Paul, when he was uh, appointed by God to plant churches, he wrote seven, well, he wrote to seven different churches. Romans, Corinth, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. He wrote seven churches. And he wrote separate letters to each one. When God appointed the Apostle John on the island of Patmos uh, to share letters with the churches, he wrote it in one revelation, one scroll. And he passed it on to the churches. In the next slide, you'll see all the churches were kind of clustered together within 30 miles uh, apart from each other about. And island of Patmos would have been to the left of Ephesus out in the, in the sea there. Um, and so that's where uh, Apostle John was uh, sent for punishment as a believer in Christ and from there he wrote uh, he received the revelation from Jesus and uh, and it began in chapters 2 and 3 with letters to churches now these churches would have heard not just their own individual letter they would have received the scroll it would be passed on from church to church and they would have read of each all of the, each other's assessments they would have heard Jesus' assessments of all the other churches in their cluster there Wouldn't it be interesting if Jesus would assess our church, but he would give us a document to be heard, or he would be here to share it, but that he would share also about the Lutheran church and about the Baptist church and about the Assembly of God church and about all the churches in town. Wouldn't that be interesting? And then all their churches would hear of his assessment of Countryside Covenant Church. Now that would be accountability, right? And that's what it was like. Uh, and in all of these letters, there was generally an outline given to each church, which began with a commendation, which means a word of encouragement to each church, and then a confrontation or word of correction, and then thirdly, instruction, and then finally, a promise. But why would God spend two chapters in the beginning of this revelation, why would he spend so much time addressing the churches rather than dive into the important stuff of the end times prophecy which Revelation is known for? Well, the answer is because the churches were the important stuff. Do you know that there are two things that will last that are currently on earth, two things that will last into all eternity? You know what those two things are? It's the word of God and it's the people of God, namely the church. will last for all eternity. We are eternal, the people of God and the word of God. 
And that's why the people of God are the important thing. The revelation was addressed to the church, or the church is. Revelation of the last things was given so that the people of God would be prepared to go up in the rapture or to go through tribulation, whatever would come first. And the message of Revelation simply complements the message from the rest of the Bible. It's not as mysterious as we think it is because the symbols, as we mentioned last week, will complement and confirm the message that Jesus taught, the Apostle Paul, and all the authors of Scripture taught. For example, Jesus' parables, uh, he, he taught many parables uh, to urge people to realign their priorities in preparation for his return or in preparation for persecution, like the parable of the faithful servants. Be faithful until the master returns or the parable of the ten virgins and the oil be prepared with your oil lamps full for the wedding or the parable of the sheep and the goats or the parable of the invitation to the great banquet some were ready to go to the banquet others were too busy tending their own things to be uh, busy uh, to be interrupted with news of a banquet many of the other new testament passages dealt with the topic of compromising in the world as well. First uh, John 2, do not love the world or anything in the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life, rather love God. Uh, Colossians 2, Paul says, set your eyes on things above, not on earthly things. In other words, prepare your hearts for my return, Jesus said. And that's what Revelation is all about. Even those who believe that Christians will be raptured before any great tribulation will happen. Those folks are called the pre-millennialists. Millennial means 1,000-year reign, millennial. There will be 1,000 years where Jesus will come down and he'll reign on the earth for 1,000 years, and then the, and then the rest of Revelation will play out after a 1,000-year reign. But they will be raptured before the millennial kingdom is established. So it's pre-millennial. But then there are those who are post-millennial. The rapture will happen after the thousand-year reign, and there are others are amillennial. That's for another Sunday. But of the premillennialists, those who believe the rapture will take place before the millennial kingdom, there are three lines of thought and disagreement. There's the pre-trib, premillennialists. Pre-trib means um, they'll be raptured before any tribulation. Pre-tribulation, they'll be raptured, then the millennial kingdom we've set up. There are the mid-trib rapture theorists who believe they'll go through three and a half years of tribulation before all of the wrath of the Antichrist and Satan will be unleashed on the earth. But they'll be raptured after three and a half years, the church. And then there are the post-trib rapture theorists who believe that Christians will go through seven years of tribulation, then the rapture will happen, then the tribulation, or then the millennial kingdom will be set up. So there's a wide variety of thought and interpretation of Scripture, and all of these theologians use Scripture. That's why it's a mystery. That's why Jesus said, we will not know the day or the time, but we nonetheless must prepare ourselves to either go up 
or go through tribulation. We got to be prepared. That's the message. And, and that's for an upcoming sermon as well. Well, let's take a brief look at these seven churches, though, and let's take a serious assessment of who we are as a church. What would Jesus say to us if he were standing here preaching this morning? Uh, and, and then also, how would he assess our families and how would he assess our individual lives? Because we are the people of God who make up the church. Of the seven churches, only two would have been ready and faithful and prepared. The other five were not fully prepared to be faithful in the face of persecution, or they would, were not faithful and, and they would not be commended upon the second coming of Jesus, whatever timing that looks like. They weren't prepared because they were a compromising church. Five of the seven were compromising. We obviously cannot unpack all seven churches in one sermon. I, I preached on these seven uh, churches separately in the past, but we're going to have an overview of them first. The first church that was unprepared was the church of Ephesus, chapter 2 of Revelation, beginning in 1. Ephesus was a city of great wealth due to a major trade route going through the city. It was home of the Roman governor. We might think of it as a modern-day Topeka today. And Jesus said, I know your deeds. He commended them. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary, yea, church of Ephesus. Yet, this is, the, this is the confrontation. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first, your first love. Consider how far that you, you have fallen. My only question to us to consider is, as we assess ourselves is your love for Jesus stronger now than it was in the past? As you mature in years, are you maturing in your relationship and love for Christ? You've lost your first love, says Jesus to the church of Ephesus. But love isn't just this way, love is this way too. As you assess your life, how is your love for others is it demonstrated in your practical, tangible ways more so today than it has been in the past? Are we on a crescendo or decrescendo? And if we're on the decrescendo, then perhaps we're guilty of losing our first love. The second church was Pergamum, starting in verse 12 of chapter 2. Pergamum was a great center for learning, medicine, and religion. In fact, there are princes and priests and scholars that were drawn to this city. And so it was a very uh, prosperous city as well. And they were commended. They remained loyal to Christ, we're told, and they did not deny his name. Yet, here's the confrontation, they refused to confront their sin of idolatry. In verse 14, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality in the idol temples. Idolatry is something that is common for all of us. Idols are simply, idolatry is spending a greater amount of time and energy and resources on anything other than 
doing the will of God, pursuing his kingdom, serving him. Now, you may go to work, and it will look the same whether you're serving the kingdom or serving your work or serving whatever. You may be in a sport, and you may be serving Christ and his kingdom in the sport, or you might be just serving yourself and your own reputation. It may look the same, but it's in the motives. And so they were uh, confronted by the sin of idolatry. Thirdly, Thyatira in verse 18 to 29. They were a city of military strength, and we might say that this is a modern-day junction city, Fort Riley, if you will. Now, the church was planted in this city, uh, and this church demonstrated love and faith and perseverance and increasing service, we're told. They were commended. Yet they, too, like the church of Pergamum, they tolerated false teaching of idolatry, and they were led into sexual immorality. We're told in verse 20, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, but by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now today, many churches refuse to talk about, mention, teach on sexual immorality. They refuse to confront sexual immorality in the culture. Young couples, I ask them in premarital counseling, do you want God's blessing on your marriage? As I meet with them four or five times before, uh, they get married. And they say, yes, pastor, we want God's blessing. I said, then you got to do it God's way. And then I lay out God's plan, which excludes fornication, living together before you're married. But um, we're also guilty of enduring uh, things like uh, pornography and such. Um, Also, in fact, many churches and even entire denominations are beginning to bless same-sex unions. And pastors and priests and whatnot, they're doing this uh, because it fits our culture, but it doesn't fit God's word. Do we confront sexual immorality and pornography and the media, or do we turn a blind eye toward it and allow the, the cancer, the invisible cancer to erode our spiritual lives, if you will? There was a dad who uh, was with her, her, his daughter, and her daughter invited a bunch of girls over to watch TV, uh, watch a movie, and, and they opted on a DVD that they'd gotten, which was R-rated, and the dad said, ah, honey you can't watch an r-rated movie in our house and at any time you know that but dad you're gonna embarrass me in front of my friends dad this movie just has a little a few sex scenes and they're just minor and they're nothing and and, you know they're swear words and stuff but you know dad will just watch the story and so the dad promptly went outside after he was making brownies in the kitchen for the daughter and her friends stirring up the brownie mix went outside went in the backyard, picked up a little dog poop out of the backyard, came back in front of all the girls and threw the dog poop in the brownie mix and started stirring it. They're like, what? What are you doing? He said, oh, it's just a little poop. It won't hurt. You get the point, right? A little lust hurts the soul. And so they were guilty of... um, Compromising and not addressing the sexual immorality. Uh, fourth, the fourth church was planted in a city called Sardis, which was another wealthy city on a trade route. It'd be something like McPherson. 
A few in the church, they had kept the faith, but the majority of believers were content to focus on the religious externals like, relig- like church attendance while neglecting to abide in Christ. And you've heard this famous passage where Jesus said, Church of Sardis, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and what is about to die, for I have not found your, de- I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. You know, I think we could all relate to this in some ways. We all feel like we ought to be serving Christ more sacrificially. Um, we feel like our deeds may be incomplete. God, we, we know we should do more for you. We know we should love you more with our behavior. Forgive us. Well, the church of Sardis did not pray forgive us. They were completely content because externally, They looked like they had the reputation of being fully alive. They impressed everyone in their city. And then the fifth church that compromised was the church of Laodicea, verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3. Perhaps this was the wealthiest city of all the seven churches. They were known for developing ISAV and black wool cloth for shopping. It made it a place of commerce. We could consider this the Johnson County of that region. In fact, after a massive earthquake leveled Laodicea in AD 60, they refused the help of Rome because they had enough sufficient funds to rebuild on their own expense. This was the only church that received no commendation from Jesus, just correction. In verse 15, he said, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This was a self-sufficient and self-serving church. They were guilty of serving the idol of financial prosperity and security and comfort. For a place that was known for prosperity and strong economy, Jesus said, you are poor. For a place famous for their ISAV product, Jesus said, you are spiritually blind. For a place known for their shopping and fashion, Jesus said, you are naked. Like the emperor with new clothes, you're unaware of it. Many American churches seem to fit this church today. But is it a sin to be financial prosperous, financially prosperous? In fact, we all are. If we live in America and own a house or even rent, own a vehicle, then we're 97, 96% tile of the world's wealthiest people on the face of the earth. Well, it's not a sin unless our motives are to pursue wealth for our security, for our comfort, if that's what we live for. And if we don't use it as gifts from God to serve others, if we use it just for self-service as a church, as a family, as individuals, then we're guilty of the sin of Laodicea. After hearing Jesus' corrective words toward the five unfaithful churches, we may conclude that he was really, really ticked off at us. 
But that just wouldn't be true. Because we read in verse 19, he said, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. After all, what parent would refuse to correct their newly licensed teenage driver if she were texting and driving at the same time? He does so, or she does so as a mom or dad, because of love, not because I'm really frustrated and ticked off at you and you just disappoint me all the time, kid. Or what doctor, if I were to go to his office or her office and and they pointed me uh, to my my x-ray or whatever that says your heart health is in poor condition due to your unhealthy eating habits. And what doctor would be a good doctor if they said, well, but that's okay. You know what? You got a lot of blockages there, but you know what? Just go out and eat what you want and enjoy life. Life is short. Go for it. Well, we would conclude that this doctor wouldn't care for me at all. And I'd find a new doctor, right? No, we confront and warn people at times because we love them and care for them. And Jesus did so to these five churches because he loved them, one of the best for them. Well, there were two churches that received no confrontation from Jesus, but only commendation. The church in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. It was a wealthy city as well, beautiful, successful businesses. But the people of the city gave their full allegiance to the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor, as if to worship the Roman Emperor. And because of that, it turned against the church who worshiped another emperor and king. And therefore, they were persecuted. They were known as adversaries to the state. Verse 9, I know your afflictions, Jesus said, and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Not only were they persecuted by the government, but they were persecuted by the religious Jewish leaders in their synagogue, the synagogue of Satan, those who claimed to know God, those who claimed to worship God, those who knew scripture, but they they hated Jesus and Jesus' followers. And so they got the double whammy, the government and the religious Jewish leaders. Verse 10, Jesus said, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, 10 days is not a literal number. It's a number of completion. It just means for a time period, you will be persecuted. And in fact, they did. In the near recent history of their city, their bishop Polycarp was dragged out of Smyrna, and he was taken to Rome, and he was burned at the stake there. Many Christians today are the church of Smyrna around the world because of the massive persecution in closed countries. And then the second church that only received commendation was found in chapter 3, verse 8. They were known for their leather goods and their grape vineyards, Philadelphia. I don't know any cities around here known for their grape vineyards. Who would they be today in Kansas? Any grape vineyards? Our backyard, that's it. We have grape vine in our backyard. In verse 8, Jesus said, I know your deeds, and I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. They were commended. What do you notice about these last two churches who were only commended? 
and they receive no correction. What is different between these two churches and the other five? They were the only two churches of the seven that were suffering. Smyrna, afflicted, impoverished, slandered, imprisoned, put to death. Philadelphia, they had little strength. They were opposed by the religious Jewish leaders, synagogue of Satan. The only two who Jesus commended were the churches that were struggling massively in the world. The other five were very comfortable, pursuing their idols and their wealth and their comfort. How were the two commended and encouraged to prepare? Uh, the two that were commended were said, Jesus said, Do not fear, fear not. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death. You now, I've read what I'm about to read like twice before in sermons. I love this quote. It's so encouraging. Ron Boyd McMillian worked, worked 25 years with the persecuted peoples. Those who were literally imprisoned on death row going to the, whatever, to their death. And this is what he wrote. He said, Over 20 years of reporting on the suffering church, I've interviewed literally hundreds of Christians who thought they were going to die for their faith. All of them, and I really do mean all of them, exhibited two amazing characteristics. First, they experienced unspeakable peace and joy in the midst of the pain as they began to feel death draw near. And second, they were as surprised as anyone that they were not afraid of death at that particular time. I don't know about you, but if I'm put in a position like that, reject Christ or die, I would freak out. But we got to know that Jesus will be faithful to meet us right then and there, and he'll commend us. He will provide us with his very strength. And then in verse 11, they were told, hold on to what you have. Do not fear, hold on. The word hold on means to seize or retain by using strength. You know, to, uh, you're tugging at it. Or, or it's like if you're holding your child or grandchild's hand in, in a really busy mall or downtown in a big busy city, like during May Day Parade or something, you're going to hold on tight to something that you prioritize that's important to you. Or you hold on tight to your wallet, might put it in your front pocket when you're walking through the um, airport or, or women will hold tight to their, their purses as they're walking through that or we'll hold tight to our homes and possessions so much so that we'll have alarm systems put on and cameras because these things are of great importance to us. How much more so do we hold on to Jesus when in the, during the threat of persecution and opposition? So how were the five compromising churches instructed to prepare for the second coming? Well, each of these were instructed to do one thing, first and foremost. They were instructed to repent. What does repentance look like? In Ephesus, it looked like returning to your first love. Repent and do the things you did at first. In Pergamum, it looked like repent and reject the lies of idolatry. In Thyatira, it looked like repent and reject the lies of sexual immorality. In Sardis, it looked like remember to strengthen what little remains. In other words, take a serious assessment 
of your life and remember wake up in verse 2 wake up strengthen what remains and is about to die for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God my God remember therefore what you have received and heard in Laodicea repentance looked like refocusing on the eternal versus the temporary and I have a little object lesson here for do you want to help me Aaron can you help me thanks all right now we, you've seen this before but um, I want you to take this unroll it go all the way to the door okay thank you appreciate it yeah now this represents eternity you know it goes on and on and really it wouldn't stop at the door it'd go on down the hallway what direction is that east west, west? yeah west it'd go it'd go that way it'd go about California go across the ocean eternity is pretty long this represents your life this green beginning right here represents our lives of 90 years we'll call it 90 years of life Jesus says what we do during this amount of time will determine how we spend this amount of time not only how but where we spend he says prepare for this but you know what we do we prepare for this this little black section the last 20 30 years of our life we spend all of our life here preparing for retirement get the, that portfolio make sure we have enough money to get that cabin at the lake and make sure you know we can get the you know whatever we do you know we spend so much time preparing for this little piece when jesus says ah, you got it wrong folks you don't prepare for this you prepare for this thank you aaron you can continue if you want. No, you can come this way. All right, you can rewind it and just hold it at your seat, if you will. Fix your eyes on things above, not on earthly things. Seek first the kingdom of God. When was the last time? Um, oh, so, and then, the, and then in verse 20, repentance in, in the last church looked like returning to relationship with Jesus here I am Jesus said I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with that person and they with me if we are truly repentant we will be very intentional about our relationship abiding in Christ we will be very intentional about spending time in this we will be very intentional about sitting before Jesus in silence and just being with him when was the last time we did that and heard from him really heard him speak or speak through his word well Jesus promised gave promises to all seven churches not just to the faithful ones but to the compromising churches too he said if you repent if you persevere then this is my promise to you this is what I have for you you are my church you will receive the tree of life in paradise. You will be given life as their, your victor's crown. You will receive hidden manna and new, a new name. You'll be granted authority to rule over the nations. You'll be acknowledged by me before my God and all of the angels. You'll uh, be a pillar of strength forever, and I will write my name on you. You'll be given the right to sit with me on my throne. All these are promises for those who persevere and repent. Really, Revelation is a call to be prepared and a call of repentance. Yesterday um, culminated 
a week-long or 10-day-long movement called the Return, the Return to Repentance. In the Washington, D.C. Mall, thousands gathered and heard many leaders around the country come and lead a season of repentance. Lynn and I watched it on Friday night and Saturday as well. Jonathan Kahn was the one who was called to uh, orchestrate this. And he wrote The Harbinger, Mystery of the Shemitah, and The Oracle. You know Jonathan Kahn, who's a Jewish rabbi, Messianic Jewish rabbi, who loves Jesus. This is what he wrote, and I conclude with this. He wrote, Even if the election goes in the direction of biblical values and righteousness, if we don't see a spiritual turning, an awakening, a repentance, revival, then all of the political, legal, judicial, and cultural efforts will ultimately fail or be undone. will make no difference who's elected. We have a window of time, and the purpose of that window is to return to God and for revival. What can we do? In the days of 9-11-2001, people flocked to houses of worship, and it looked as if there could have been spiritual revival and an awakening, but it never came because there was no repentance. And without repentance, without a turning back, there can be no revival. When revival has come in the past, it came not into the halls of government, but with the people of God who gather in sacred assembly in obedience to Scripture, such as 2 Corinthians 7, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways or sinful ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And that is his call for us as a church. That is his call throughout Revelation. Be prepared by returning to me with a heart of repentance. Let's pray. And so, Jesus, I thank you for this church. I thank you for those who came to the early service, those who came to Christian formation, those who came to the later service, and those who are watching online, wherever they are. I thank you for each person here, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you, um, as we assess our own lives and our own families and our own church, I pray, Lord, that you'll give us wisdom to know how to repent, how to return to you, fully committed, fully prepared. Thank you, Lord, for this book of Revelation that you will reveal yourself week after week in a very special way to us as we walk through this revelation together. And prepare us, Lord. Make us effective for your kingdom. Amen.